0: Welcome everyone to Truth Nation. My name is Bill Bodner. I am joined today by the co-host. He he likes to call himself a guest, but I wish he would stop doing that. He is the co-host of the show, the chief, Mark Garrett. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bill. Hey, I'm just trying to show the appropriate deference to greatness. That's all. Nonsense. Hey, Mark, we have a guest today. Before I introduce this guest, I want to read two quotes because my feeling is that these two quotes will set the tone for today's conversation and give a little bit of an idea about what this man our guest is all about here's the first one a hero sacrifices for the greater good a hero is true to his or her conscience in short heroism means doing the right thing regardless of the consequences and that was from a book called a word with a world without heroes the author was brandon mull now i'm going to read the second quote it's a little longer so bear with me here, but it's, it's extremely important. <clears throat> ATF agents assigned to the Phoenix Field Division with the concurrence of their chain of command walked guns. ATF agents allowed weapons to be provided to individuals who they knew would traffic them to members of Mexican drug trafficking organizations. They did so by failing to lawfully interdict the weapons, and they did so by encouraging federal firearms licensees to continue selling weapons in instances where they knew that no interdiction efforts would be planned. When I voiced surprising concern with this tactic to ASAC George DeLette and SAC William Newell, my concerns were dismissed. SAC Newell referred to the case as groundbreaking and bragged that we were only the only people in the country doing this. My other ASAC Jim Needles merely said, Pete, you know that if you or I were on the case, it wouldn't be getting run this way. This operation, which in my opinion endangered the American public, was orchestrated in conjunction with Assistant United States Attorney Emery Hurley, the same Assistant U.S. Attorney who prevented us from using some of the common and accepted law enforcement techniques utilized elsewhere in the United States. I've read documents that indicate his boss, U.S. Attorney Dennis Burke, also agreed with the direction of the case. Allowing firearms to be trafficked to criminals is a dangerous and deadly strategy. The thought that the techniques used in the Fast and Furious investigation would result in taking down a cartel, given the toothless nature of straw purchasing law and the lack of strong firearms trafficking statute is, in my opinion, delusional. Based on my conversations with agents who had assisted in this case, surveillance was often terminated on on individuals far from the border, which means that while the case agent believed that these weapons were destined for Mexico— the possibility exists that they were trafficked with cartel drugs to other points within the United States of America. As a career law enforcement officer who had to investigate the deaths of police officers, children, and others at the hands of armed criminals, I was and continue to be horrified, truly horrified. I believe that these firearms will continue to turn up at crime scenes on both sides of the border for years to come. These words were spoken to the House Oversight Committee on Operation Fast and Furious on June 15, 2011, by today's guest, Mr. Pete Friselli. Uh, Pete retired from the ATF a few years ago, and he his role at the end, I believe, was uh, Deputy Assistant Director of the agency. Prior to ATF, he served 15 years with New York City Police Department, and he was on the Bronx Homicide Task Force. He volunteers at Empower Oversight, a government watchdog organization. Mark, you and I may have to talk okay. about getting involved <laughs> offline no with doubt. him. Pete, and by the way, the, the main reason he's on today is he's also an author. Uh, his book, The Deadly Path, How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Armed the Mexican Cartels, will be released on March 5th, 2024, just well, I guess about a week away now. Pete, thank you for joining the show and welcome.
1: I'm honored to be here, and hey, thanks for both your continued uh, several decades of service to public safety, right? We took an oath a long time ago, and it's nice to see folks still banging the drum, getting the message out to keep people safe, even in retirement.
0: That's one thing I always say is the oath never expires. Once you take the oath, you live the oath, Yeah, right? So, Pete, let's start back in your early days. Tell me about where you grew up and what life was like coming up.
1: Sure. I grew up in a part of Yonkers, New York, just north of the Bronx border, uh, not too far from a place called Getty Square. We were like, there was three or four white families left in the neighborhood. We were one of them. And it was funny because when I was a kid, we got along with everybody. There were no issues back then. People respected one another. But there was a lot of crime in our area. And I remember Yonkers Police Department was doing a pie bust operation and it turned into a gunfight. And then the crime scene tape went up. And I remember as a kid, you see, the only people who crossed that tape were the cops. And I, I just was caught up in the mystery of, wow, those guys know what's going on. Like, they know the things that the other people on the other side of the tape don't know. So as a little kid, I was so intrigued by that. That and, and the cop shows I watched as a kid, that's where I leaned towards wanting to be a police officer. Probably was like eight or nine years old. And I that's what I wanted to do from that point on. I wasn't 100% sure, because you never know, but you know, it's, it just it was something that- Got its hooks into me and never let go. So, was it something? Was that pursuit?
0: Did that help keep you out of trouble growing up? Would, would, would you? Is that something that's fair to say? I, I know with me, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and sometimes I'd make decisions based on that, right? Well, define trouble.
1: I, I still <laughs> hung out. I still hung out in the park with my friends and drank beer. Sometimes we'd have a keg hanging out in the Lincoln High School parking lot, and the cops would come and read Runaway. run away. But I I'd never hurt anybody, or I was always disrespect. I, I was always very careful to not be disrespectful to teachers or my elders or priests or cops for that reason. But yeah, I still grew up and made my mistakes, which I think helps you as a cop if you've done some of those things. Again, without delving into like the criminal world, drinking beer, hanging out underage perhaps is not lawful, but I, I don't know that it was actually as bad as some of the other things that folks were doing in the neighborhood. Yeah. So any, you play any sports in high school or any? I played sports? baseball but I wasn't great. I did that since I was a young kid. I grew up idolizing Thurman Munson, who was the catcher for the oh, So I didn't live too far from Yankee Stadium. But yeah, I, I wasn't very good at sports, to be honest with you. I was okay. I wasn't horrible. Right. But yeah, it certainly wasn't tall enough to be very successful at basketball. And I was a skinny kid. So I, football just wasn't a good fit for me either. Talk about drinking beer. 836
0: River Street in the Bronx. Stan's Sports Bar across Absolute. the street from Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I, I was a big Yankee fan growing up, and I probably spent too much time there when I shouldn't have. So, so Pete, how old were you when you started with New York City
1: Police Department? Believe it or not, I took the test to be an NYPD cop at age 16 and a half. You could be 16 and a half and take the test back then. So I took it. I was in 10th grade. I took it at Taft High School in the Bronx, passed it. And I was happy because I knew that eventually I'd get to call. In fact, they called me a couple of times and it, I was like, don't you folks do the math? I'm not old. So I went to applicant investigations. They're like, oh, you're too young. Go home. So that happened twice. But yeah, I was 20 when I got sworn in, hit the streets, still 20 years old. So it was weird because it was that right around the time that New York changed the, the age for drinking. So I was able to patrol the streets. I had a gun, took the gun home, obviously. And, but I wasn't old enough to go out and drink in a bar. It was weird. And in hindsight, I don't know, I was still immature at the time, if Uh that was wise hiring people at that age, but it was great because I worked with a lot of folks. Some of the cops I worked with were around during the Serpico days, because back then Uh people stayed on the job for decades. but So I had a lot of the benefit of learning from some really senior people with a lot of time on the job, which is something you don't see too much nowadays. I remember when I came on with the NYPD, a duty captain, which is a precinct commander, they were old men, white hair, red faced. Now you go to a pre saints captains are like thirty year old, thirty two years old. Yeah. So what experience are they pulling from? So it's a, it's a different profession now than it was when I started. Pete, no, what you're, we'll you're, we'll, we'll, go ahead, Mark.
2: No, it's just funny you said Serpico because we're going we're going to talk obviously about people who are stepping up and doing the right thing, or at least trying to, like you did, Pete, in the con- congressional hearings. And people are not familiar with the Serpico story, they should become self educated, watch the yeah. movie, read the book. It's fascinating. And it's really, it's really a story of courage.
1: Yeah. Well, go ahead, Bill. You know, Pete, what was the minimum age at NYPD? back then? 20. It was 20. It was 20. Okay. Yeah. So this was 1987, 20 years old. Now I think it's 23, if I'm not mistaken. And it used to be that you could do 20 years and then retire with half of your pay. Or if you did more then you got more prorated, if you did 40 years, you, you left with your full check. I don't mm-hmm. know that many folks did it. I did know one guy who worked 42 years, actually, Rudy Edwards, old time African-American guy, great cop. He was the first guy that told me. I was a skinny kid when I got out of the academy. He's like, Pete, people are going to see you got that clean leather. Your patches aren't dirty. They're going to test you. And he he said, look, first guy that gets in your face, you better knock him on his ass or folks are going to think they can come up and do it all the time. And he was right. It was different. Back then, policing was somewhat of a full contact sport. Because don't forget, crack had just come out. Edward Byrne had just been assassinated in Queens. So the whole tone of policing in New York had changed. They created the tactical narcotics teams. So it was an interesting time to learn how to be a cop. But I was blessed to work with a lot of older guys that just, they were just thrilled to show you the job. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you're willing to just keep your mouth shut and learn from them, then it, it helps. What year was this, Pete?
0: 87. 87. Yeah. And so graduating the NYPD Academy, where's your first assignment
1: in the city? Well, before Giuliani merged the departments, there were three. There was New York yeah. City Housing, Transit, and NYPD. I was a housing cop. So okay. we all took the same test, went through the same academy. I didn't know I was going to be a housing cop until they got sworn in. They sent me up to the 11th floor. I was like, oh boy, what happened? Yeah. So but I'll tell you what, it was, it was the best job I ever had. Small department. The, the captain knew you your kids' names. You knew the captain's kids' names. It was like family. And you learn community policing, which I'm a firm believer in. Like I knew the people who lived in the projects. They knew me. There were times where you'd use force and the people in the community would actually cheer you on because they knew you weren't an asshole. You weren't beating up on people. You were doing, you were helping keep their neighborhood clean. And look, we had some folks who maybe were a little bit heavy handed and they weren't, they didn't get that same kind of support from the community. But if you were there treating people with respect and then you had to do what you had to do, they understood why, which is something that I think is sorely missing today that folks assume every time police use force that it's a cop doing something wrong. Unfortunately, sometimes necessary force has to be used. That's why they call it necessary force, right? Right. So different time. Where where was your first assignment? PSA8, which is in the Bronx. It covers like Soundview section of the Bronx, Castle Hill projects, Soundview projects, Bronx River projects. And then some of the projects in the North Bronx actually weren't too bad. So we didn't go there very often, like a Marble Hill, which is up near Riverdale, wasn't bad back then. It is now, um, but it was a great place to learn. And the other thing is you you were on your feet. So I walk the footpost sometimes alone, like two, three o'clock in the morning. So if you think that you're going to be a tough guy and go there and do things, you're wrong, man. You learn really quickly how to deescalate things, but also you learn how to stand up for yourself because like, like Rudy said, if people think they can get over on you, they're going to push you around. So I was walking in this kind of fine line between you're alone, you might have to use force one day and the next day talk somebody out of something stupid. But it was just such a gift to, to be able to do that. And then the merge came. By that time, I was a detective. So I was a housing detective in PSA 7, which is the South Bronx, rough place. And then when the merger came, I wound up in the 47th precinct detective squad, which was at, that year led the, the city in homicides, heavily influenced by Jamaican posses and whatnot up there. so like yep. White Plains Road, Gun Hill Road. And then a couple of years later, I was asked to go to the Bronx homicide squad. And I went there and that's when I first started working with feds. And it was interesting because my, my last state murder was the beating death of a four-year-old kid named Joseph Dauphin. He, had, he he was mentally handicapped. He soiled himself and he was being babysat by his stepfather. So the stepfather changed him and the kid soiled himself again almost immediately. So the guy who flew into a rage and beat this kid to death, tragic. And that same year that case went to trial, he got sentenced to four years. That same year, I was working with ATF a bit and DEA and whatnot, but mostly with the ATF guys. And we had some prohibited possessor cases where these guys were just shitheads and they were doing stuff with guns. And we would take those cases federally, just merely for gun possession. Mm -hmm. And those guys were averaging four years in prison. So that's how I got hooked on leaving the NYPD because I loved that job. And going to the feds was I realized, hey, I could have more impact and put people away for a longer time, like violent people, if I leave the NYPD and jump ship and go to the feds. So I did. So I was 35 years old sucked because I had to go through the academy, six months at the academy. And I was exactly. always a big dopey weightlifter because I was a skinny kid. So as a cop, yeah. you want to put on some size. So if you have to put hands on somebody, they know you're there. Because in the, when I first started, the, the bigger guys could have threw me like a kite. So by the time I went to the ATF Academy, I, was, I could bench press 350 pounds, all that stuff, but I couldn't run a quarter mile without like <laughs> sucking wind. And down there, it's all calisthenics and running. So man, let me tell you, I was never at the back of the pack but I was never at the front of the pack when I went through the academy with guys like 23, 25, 27 years old. I was one of the old timers. There were a couple others that had time on the job like myself. But yeah, it was a it was an eye opener, very humbling. That's nice Glencoe, Georgia. Yeah. A
0: little bit humid there, too, huh? I was gonna say what time
2: okay. what time of year was it, Pete? It was May. And
1: yes, it was <laughs> oh, humid. You started it, May? Oh, yeah. You know, it was guy. humid number one. Number two is you have those sand fleas down there that mm-hmm. get all and the, the instructors, like back then, Border Patrol. Was also down at Fletzi. Now they moved to a different Fletzi, I think in Artesia, New Mexico. So you didn't have your own agency's instructors teaching you. You had whoever. The Border Patrol instructors were brutal. And I remember yeah. one time they had us doing leg leg lifts where you have you're sitting there laying on your back with doing repetitions in on a pile of like fire ant hills. So they're doing leg lifts and these guys are laughing their ass off torturing you while you're getting gnawed at by all kinds of bugs. It, it was just. Uh, an interesting place. I loved it. In hindsight, it was a great time. It was like going to college again, but it, it, was, it had its moments. I got to think with your background though, Pete, when you went through
0: there, the instructors did treat you, looked at you to be a leader within the class and to mentor some of the younger people with your background.
1: Yeah, truthfully, yeah. Some of the instructors treated me differently. Some of them, I actually think he, he may have even looked up to my experience, but it was because there's a bar on the campus. Right, And back then, they, they weren't as strict with fraternization, so I'd go to the bar every night. Because, look, the first school that you go to is Criminal Investigators Training Program, which a lot of it's very basic stuff. So I don't want to pretend I knew everything because so I had to learn the federal way, but a lot of it was a repetition of what I had already learned. And the first half, before you go to the ATF-specific school, was actually a lot of running, but it wasn't physically brutal. So I'd go every day. I'd, after class, I'd go to the gym, go to the Fletchy cafeteria, eat that horrible food. Mm -hmm. And then I would go to the G bar, they called it. And sometimes the instructors would come and drink with us, which was interesting. They don't do that now. But so I'd I'd sit there and hold court with these guys who were teaching me, which was weird. Heard some great stories, though. And and the interesting thing, i worked with ATF in New York, but as things are different in different parts of the country, crime trends are different. So it was interesting to hear the stories from instructors and senior agents who came down to teach who worked in other parts of the country, or even one guy, I remember his name was Jamie Ballesteros, came in and was talking about the stuff that he was doing in Mexico. And at the time, I didn't even know ATF had a presence in Mexico. So I was like sitting there like, wow, this is really cool. It was, it was fun. And then, so you graduate
0: the academy there. What's your first assignment with ATF? Did you, were you into New York originally or where did they send you originally?
1: Yeah, I got sworn into New York, sworn in at uh-huh. the World Trade Center. I didn't go through the academy till I had almost two years on a job because of 9-11. So I got sworn in, in June of 2001. 9-11 happened. They they kept me in New York. I was involved in rescue and recovery for a while. I was there on day one, right after the first plane hit. Stayed on site for a few days. Wound up many years later getting lung cancer, losing the right lung to 9-11 related cancer. Never smoked a cigarette in my life. But so I worked mostly home invasion cases and gang cases and still in the Bronx because they let me stay up in the Bronx because I knew the area. And even worked a lot with the DEA Red Rum Group in New York as a detective, and I continued to work with them as, a, as an ATF agent because my boss, because I had so much time with NYPD, he gave me a lot more latitude than he probably should have. So there was, I had a desk at the Southern District of New York because we were doing a lot of those trigger lock cases, what we call them. I had a desk at Red Rum and I had a desk at our at office and I just bounced between the three, but it was great. Uh, look, we made some good cases, had a significant impact, but I was there for about six years. So explain to people what Red Rum was back then. Well, Red Rum, at least during my time working with them, they were a faction of DEA that was staffed with NYPD detectives, DEA agents, and New York State troopers. At least that's who staffed it in the five or six years that I worked with them. And they focused on drug-related crimes involving murder. And they were doing a ton of home invasion cases where you had folks dressing up as police, doing robberies of stash houses, just not dressing up as police, just doing robberies like regular folks. But the interesting thing was back in those days, you'd have cases where you'd arrest one guy, you'd start proffering him and find out about what well, we had one case and it wasn't the biggest case that they had done. It was the biggest case that I worked with them They had um, 21 defendants, roughly 145 home invasion robberies, six murders, kidnapping on one crew. And it all came out of going after folks like being felons in possession of firearms, proffering them, and then going and following up on the information you'd get in proffers. There was another case, I, wasn't, I helped a little bit on it, but uh, this guy, Billy Rolot, who was a rock star in DEA, he had a case on, on uh, this guy, Segundo Batista was the main defendant's name. That crew did over 200 robberies. These were prolific robbers. And the weird thing is most of those jobs didn't get reported because they were robbing drug dealers. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is sometimes they would get the wrong information and they would hit the wrong house and go in. And those were pretty barbaric crimes because they go into a house thinking there's drugs or drug money in there. And when the people are saying, hey, I don't have it, they think they're being bullshitted too. So they would burn them, like put, put a knife on the stove and let it get red hot and then burn them with the knife or take a, a, an iron, plug it in. Where's the money? I don't have the money. Burn them. So it was pretty horrific to see some of the things that would happen. But the reality was they were in the wrong house. So not like people were holding out on them. They didn't have anything to give, but the guys doing the robberies, because they got information from what they used to call Sonteros, they thought they were in the right house. So it was bad. So, but luckily when those cases would get reported, that would give us sometimes a springboard on being able to at least have a witness who potentially could identify somebody. And then, so some of the cases that we would investigate wouldn't be reported, but some would, and it just helped put the puzzle pieces together. I know it sounds confusing, but it was really rewarding. The, The Santeros
0: were the, the witch doctors that they would, that the people would go to for like to get a blessing
1: or am I right about that, Pete? Well, that's in the, in the Santeria, in the religion, but they used to call the people who would bless them with the tips on the job, a Santero as well. A lot okay. of them were, a lot of them were livery cab drivers. So they okay. would drive a guy to a location. And if he, he looked like he had drugs in a bag or a duffel bag or something, they would tip off the, the drug guys who would go and then try to rob that apartment. So they used to say, because they had blessed them with the job, they used to call them Santeros was a nickname for the tipsters. They were basically tipsters. God,
2: hey, Hey, Pete, I just want to chime in. After your book, you should write a script for a movie because
1: this is fascinating. This has so many layers to it. I'm going, oh, my God, this is crazy stuff. Yeah, no, thanks. Like I said, I was blessed to work with guys who taught me this stuff I didn't know these things going in. And the Red Run guys who all worked for Derek Maltz, who I know is a mutual friend of mine and yours, Bill, those guys were rock stars. So just, again, it's another chapter in my life where I was blessed to be around people who just knew the job but we're more than willing to teach you the job. So that, you know, and that's how you learn how to do it. You, you, if you think, if you go into this profession thinking everything, you're going to fail. So yeah. I was blessed to work with some really sharp guys. And and those were the sharpest of the guys I worked with.
0: It's, Pete, not to get too off track, but do you think today with earlier retirements that, that that's missing or that's a part of, pol- of policing, especially in a city like New York, that's gone? And what impact does that have on younger guys coming up?
1: No, it's massive impact. I learned from guys who had a lot of time on the job. Like as a new detective, most of the guys I worked with had 30 years on a job. I had seven. So there was so much that they blessed me with just because they wanted to teach you. Look, this is a profession where you learn constantly throughout your time on the job. Like the day that you think you know everything, that's the day you need to go away. So you're talking to a guy who's got 35 years on a job. He's been a detective for 20 something years. He's going to know tricks that you don't just learn unless you've done it. So when you have guys now that are retiring the minute they hit that 20th year, you're missing that experience because you you don't learn this job that quickly. And then the other thing is, this is a strange profession in that crime trends change, the laws change, department policies change. So if you're not willing to be a sponge and continue to just absorb that knowledge, you're going to fail. So to be around guys that had 35 years of being a sponge and they were willing to ring it out for you was a gift. And it's a gift I tried to pay back as I got further on in my career, but I'm so deeply grateful to those people who took the time to teach me the profession because it look, it's a noble profession when you do it right. And I think most people try to do it right. But yeah, I, I'd say the impact is is profound when you have folks that don't have that experience to pass on because they don't stick around long enough. And it, and look, that, that absolutely dovetails into leadership when you have yeah. people who, who aren't in the field developing that knowledge base from doing it for a long time making critical decisions, they're not going to be as effective as someone who's been around a long time and seen things over and over again and are willing to make decisions based on experience. Yeah, that's a great point, Pete. Two things. So so what's your feeling?
0: People may not know that in federal law enforcement, there's a mandatory retirement age, 57 years old. What's your feeling on that, Pete? Do you think federal law enforcement loses experience? They lose uh, a little bit on the top end when they're forcing people out the door? Or do you think that's a necessary part of it to keep the to keep agencies young
1: and stay current with times? I don't think it's a good idea, frankly. Look, by the time most people are 57 years old, they're usually not field agents anymore anyway. Mm. When you're forcing folks out at that time, you're passing some of that knowledge out the door, and especially when you have agencies where you're not hiring a lot over spans of many years. Like I remember when I left ATF, I was the head of training and I also had a hand in recruiting and hiring. And about a third of ATF had over 10 years on the job. Another third had less than three years on the job. No, I'm sorry, less than five years on the job. And then the other third was in an on-job the training status. Wow. It's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, it's it's scary. So as that first third starts to retire, Mm -hmm. you're gonna have a, a tremendous portion of the organization with less than 10 years of experience And that's where you're pulling your managers from because you can't promote guys that are retired. So I I think it's bad. I I know as an NYPD cop, I could have stayed on till age 62. Mm -hmm. And the truth is I retired when I was just shy of 56 because I wanted to go out on my terms because I'd seen guys that stayed till age 57 and got the boot. And then once you're not working, it's hard to find a job. Mm -hmm. So I I probably would have stuck around. I love the mission of the organization. Certain things I didn't like, and I know we're going to talk about them, because I think when you get things wrong, you have a duty to own it, and my agency didn't own it when they should have, and that's why I stepped up. But yeah, it's sad to see folks getting dragged out the door because they reach a certain age when they still have the ability to really serve if they were allowed to stick around. Yeah. Yeah, so, we've
0: all so seen Pete, it. Yeah, we, we have. Pete, Phoenix. How did you yeah. end
1: up in Phoenix? And let's pick it up from there. Sure. I had, for the six years that I was in New York as an ATF agent, I loved working there. The U.S. Attorney's Office I worked with there, uh, over there was phenomenal. They just never said no. And if I brought them a case that was so-so know, needed some extra work, they would say, all right, we'll take it, but just we need you to do A, B, C, or D. But it was never a no, an outright yep. no. So I loved it. I had an office there, but driving past Ground Zero, I lost six very good friends that were cops on Ground Zero. I actually watched the South Tower fall on three of them. Vinnie Dan's, John Coughlin and Walter Weaver. I watched them walk into the South Tower Plaza area right before the building collapsed. Mm-hmm. So uh, driving past there got old for me because I've, I had, look, I was dealing with some survivor's guilt because I was right there with not that. To, and took a, it was difficult because I was like, why am I still here when those guys are gone? They're my friends. And I was so screwed up by it that I couldn't even attend their funerals. And I never missed a police funeral, but I felt guilty being alive that I couldn't even bring myself to go to their funerals. So I put in for transfers, never got transferred. So the only way out of New York was to pro. So I passed the assessment center, it was called. And then I put in for supervisors jobs in Jacksonville, Savannah, Phoenix, and Dallas. And I got picked for the Phoenix gig. I'd never visited Phoenix before that in my life. Went out there and instantly realized that it was not New York. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. What year was that? What year you, you, did you get out there? I got out there in February of 2007. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: And you were a group supervisor leading a group. What, what was the type of cases that your team worked on then? Just to set the tone for what was going on in Phoenix at that time sure. with guns.
1: We, we had two things that, that fell under my group. One was we were handling all the Mexico-bound firearms trafficking cases. And the other thing was we had this program called Project Arrow, which was similar to what I was doing in New York with uh, the trigger lock program. Where we were going after guys who were felons who had guns. They worked, the Arrow had two agents. They worked mostly with the Phoenix PD. Great team, excellent agents. And then I had a really robust group that focused on Mexico bound firearms trafficking. And it was, it was interesting. My first weekend out in Phoenix, we, when I went out there, it was brand new supervisor. I had 22 years of law enforcement experience by that time. But I figured, let me watch and learn, see what's going on. Because I, again, I know things are different parts of the country. And I remember first weekend, one of my agents calls me and he's like, hey boss, a licensed dealer called us. Got a guy that walked in very suspicious, bag full of money. He wanted eight, 13 of the AK 47 variant rifles that, you know, that the guy, that everything he had on the shelf. So and they're not the AK 47s like the media will have you believe, like the collision of are they're, they're civilian rifles. You pull the trigger once, one bullet goes off. They don't fire automatic. So, but still, we roll out there. The, the, the dealer does the transaction while we're outside. We watched the guy load the thir- 13 rifles into a car, heads off. We would never do the interdiction in the parking lot because the FFL, we don't want to burn the FFL because these guys are smuggling to cartels. Mm. And if the, these guys realize that the, the, the dealer is on them, they'll go back and smoke the guy. So we would follow them off site, do a car stop, separate everybody. Basic policing, get them to have differing stories and you know, escalate it to probable cause. So I remember on that particular car stop, we seized the, the 13 rifles. And my agent calls Emory Hurley, well, I'm sorry, at that time it was Rachel Hernandez and runs the this, this scenario buyer. And she's like, all right, let them go. We can go pick them up later, which to me was weird because in New York, it would have been, all right, bring them to jail. We'll write a complaint, take them out of jail tomorrow, and then you bring them to the magistrate. Mm-hmm. So to let them go was odd. And, but I was like, okay, I'm new here. I don't know how it works. So they, these guys go, we take them. So anyway, they refer the case to the US attorney's office and that indictment never came. And I would watch that unfold time and time again. So we were taking those cases when we could to the county prosecutors, which was discouraging because we're not local cops. We're supposed to be taking things to to federal court. So, but yeah, time and time again, I would watch my agents go out there, do things that happened. And you you name where in the country, they were following the the law. They were doing things, basic police techniques, nothing crazy. And they were constantly told no. So that's that was something that was a bit of an eye-opener. So for years, we were interdicting the firearms every time. The dealers would call us every time. So it would unfold a couple of ways. One is they would call us. We would get out there right away, set up surveillance, maybe sometimes even let an agent go in just to see who's filling out the papers so that they could keep the uh, eyes on and let us know what's going on. And then we would do the interdiction. Then. Sometimes we would be out doing an interdiction when we would get a call from another dealer and they'd be like, hey, we, we can't get out there. So he's like, all right, you know what? I'll tell them that they didn't pass Nick. They'll have to come back tomorrow so that we can be there the following day to do the interdiction. And then there were other times where we just couldn't be there because we were at training or we had court or whatever. We just didn't have enough people to do it. And in those instances, the dealers just wouldn't make the transaction. So these are licensed gun dealers. They were great sources of information for us where I'd say about 90% of the cases that we generated came from dealers saying, hey, something shady is going on here, and can you guys come out here? And then we would do what we had to do. But it was ironic to watch for years when we were so successful at putting people in jail in New York, how it wasn't working that way in Phoenix. And the other discouraging thing was, I would watch my agents do this year over year same result. Mm-hmm. And you get to realize that without that buy-in from the prosecutor's office, my agents are never going to reach their full potential because if you can't get court orders, you can't get subpoenas, you can't get because the, the AUSAs are too lazy or just too disengaged, then you're watching your people flounder through no fault of their own, which was as, as a new leader, which was really difficult for me to stomach. Pete, that's
0: such an interesting thing. and I think Mark and I have, I think we at least alluded to this on some previous shows that we did. It used to be back in the day when when crime went up. The cry was, hey, we need more cops on the street, more police on the street. I feel like the issue is different today in that cops are doing their jobs. We just don't have prosecutors that are willing to put charges on people. At least, hey, my experience is a little limited. It's mostly the West Coast, right? On the West Coast, I can tell you that there is not a desire to charge people. There's not a desire to incarcerate people. And what happens is the system runs amuck because, as you said, for your it, it's incredibly frustrating to law enforcement uh, to put the work in and have it result in what in nothing, right? In nothing. And just so so people understand, I, probably. And Pete, correct me if I get off track here. I, I'm I'm retired too, but to explain how the federal justice system works a little bit, because people will say, well, why didn't you just arrest those guys? He he bought 13 guns. Why don't you just arrest those guys? So. Federal agents, obviously, they're empowered to make arrests. They do not charge people. Prosecutors charge people. So there's really two ways that a federal agent can arrest someone. They can make a probable cause arrest, meaning that activity, or like the case you described, Pete, guy bought 13 guns, he's driving way. you know it's illegal, you have probable cause, stop him, arrest him. Here's why prosecutors don't like cops and agents to do that. It puts them on the clock. They have to now do the work, right? That, person's gonna, that person has to have an initial appearance, let's say within 48 hours. So right away, that prosecutor has to sit down with the investigating officers, get the story, uh, put the, let's call it an affidavit, put the affidavit together. It's basically write down the story about what happened and why that, how that person committed this crime, what the crime was, what the evidence is, and present it to a judge. They don't necessarily like that. The second way that an arrest can be made is indicting the suspect ahead of time, right? And we've moved in the federal system, at least on the West Coast, we've moved to a system because of a lack of trust in law enforcement, Pete, that this is really the only way cases get charged. They'll still do probable cause cases uh, on occasion, but you really have to put pressure on prosecutors to do it. You have to say, because they will say, let them go. Just that, that, like, just like that example you said, we had caught people with drugs in LA, drugs and guns in LA. DEA had, and the prosecutors would say, "That's great. Let them go for now. We'll get, the, we'll do the indictment. We'll charge them. We'll go back and get them later." We know we're never going to get them later, and we know they're never going to get charged. It's well, incredibly frust- frustrating, Pete.
1: Yeah. Well, there's that. Plus, the targets we were going after, we knew were smuggling guns. Which, when we stopped them, they had. 13 guns, right? They weren't Mm -hmm. loaded, thankfully. There were other car stops we'd have where folks did load guns. I'll tell you about one of those. But my concern was, wait a minute, you're asking me, as you point out, like if they're not going to charge the person, we're wasting our time because you can't arrest somebody knowing that the U.S. Attorney's Office is telling you, don't bring them in. Uh, In New York, we would make summary arrests, as we called them, Mm -hmm. and the prosecutors would never give us a hard time. There was one time where we made a summary arrest in Phoenix where we were a somewhat new assistant U.S. attorney almost accused us of kidnapping. You can't do that. Yes, we can. We had got into an argument where I had, actually had to speak to her boss yeah. because I had made summary arrests. She was telling me legally there was no legal ability for a federal agent to do that. So eventually her boss backed off, but explained how they don't like it. But we had a case that stemmed out of a gun show where one of our agents watched guys who had come out of a, a Ford King Ranch, beautiful truck, by the way, mm-hmm. brand new, red, with Sinaloa license plates. So Mm -hmm. we watched them go into the gun gun show. They buy a bunch of AK knockoffs. They buy some of the big drum magazines. They buy cases upon cases of ammo. I think it was was 10 cases of 1,000 rounds each. And they load them into this truck with Sinaloa license plates. We conduct the car stop. Well, the Phoenix police sergeant was the one that actually was calling it out. So when we catch up to them. They stop the car. By this time, one of the rifles had a loaded magazine right? An AK knockoff. Again, it's not a machine gun, but it's still a rifle. And we were carrying pistols at the time. When we pitched the case to the US Attorney's Office, their response was, well, this could be perceived as racial profiling. We're not going to take this case. Like timeout. The the car has Sinaloa license plates. It's illegal for a person who's not a, a, here legally to buy a gun and to possess a gun. So, I mean, well, they'll, they'll say that the car stop was the result of uh, racial profiling let them go. So we luckily we were able to take that to the county. And then ICE came and and started their deportation proceedings. This is the kind of stuff that we dealt with all the time. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is we got the the tips from the the licensed gun dealers. And that includes at gun shows, because they would see people selling guns off paper and tell us, hey, there's something shady going on here. Mm -hmm. And you look at what's going on now, where the gun dealers are being demonized by the current ATF director. But what's worse is after like three years of doing this, my group's focus changed because Phoenix had become the capital of home invasion, robberies and kidnappings for North America, only behind Mexico City, which was not a distinction that Phoenix wanted. Mm -hmm. So my group's focus was changed to focus on home invasions. And another group, which was a brand new group, was stood up to focus on Mexico-bound firearms trafficking. So when we would seize the guns, they would never get traced from crime scenes because we had them in our custody. And the dealers would call us. So the dealers, the way a trace works is ATF folks in West Virginia. We'll call the manufacturer, Smith and Wesson, or whoever, and say, "Hey, did you make this gun? Where was it shipped to?" They'll say, "Yeah, we shipped it to Pete's gun store in, in um, wherever, Phoenix, Arizona." So then, that's where the, the trace ends. Is whoever bought the gun at that gun store. So, but we weren't tracing those guns because we had them in our custody. They were never used to shoot some cop or some kid. We we keeping people safe. Would have been nice if people went to jail. But yeah, at least we knew the guns weren't going to be used against somebody who didn't deserve to be on the other end of a a firearm. So all of a sudden, those dealers now, when my group's focus changed, start calling us and they're like, hey, man, we don't get what's going on here. Why are we getting calls from ATF saying our gun was recovered at a crime scene in Mexico? Right. So the dealers now Fast and Furious is going on. The dealers start like calling ATF saying, hey, man, what's going on? Why are my guns all of a sudden being traced? But at the point, none of us in the group that I was in or, or the other groups that were co-located with us knew that this new group was letting guns ride off into the sunset and crossing the border. So at some point, the dealers themselves start reaching out to ATF saying, hey, man, we don't want to sell to these straw buyers anymore because we don't feel comfortable. So ATF command staff in Phoenix I was not part of that group, and I was not part of the command staff involved in this. And the U.S. attorney's office met with the dealers and told them, no, keep selling. Keep selling. So now you have these dealers who were cooperative, who were following the law are selling guns to only have their guns turn up in crime scenes in Mexico. Some of them pretty grisly crime scenes. And then eventually as Brian Terry got killed with one of those weapons, when he was patrolling the desert, looking for drug robbery crews that were also patrolling the desert, looking for drug couriers. And that's when people started to find out when one of the agents in that group blew the whistle, that ATF was actually letting guns go, which was against everything that we did for the previous few years. And the weird thing is a lot of the cases like where straw purchasers weren't identified in advance and the guns would make it to Mexico, the U.S. attorney had come up with an internal policy that they enforced like incredibly strictly that once the gun went to Mexico, the body of the crime is in Mexico, don't even bring us the case, right? So now for years, we were contending with that only to have the new policy by the same prosecutor to let the guns go to Mexico. It was mind-blowing. Because we're like, man, I mean, for years, if we did that, our case was dead in the water, period. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't even entertain the discussion. And now all of a sudden you pivoted and you were going to let the guns go to Mexico as part of your strategy. And then, like I said in my opening statement, DEA was trying to bring down the cartels with the A46 statute, which was powerful. And and mm-hmm. uh, so we, th- these people thought they were going to bring down a cartel with a straw purchasing charge. And there was no firearms trafficking statute to match that 846 statute. So the the idea that they could even bring down the cartel to me was like astounding. Like there's no way this was going to happen. Like what were you thinking? And anyway, let
2: me, let me ask you a question or actually I'm going to ask you to clarify for the audience exactly what a straw purchase is. And in other words, at what point, obviously some of these, these FFL, these licensed dealers are contacting ATF, contacting the feds. about what's going on here? But, and you said that, but at what point do these owners feel that they are actually involved in something nefarious? I've got some articles in front of me, and I remember Fast and Furious, and at the time. But what if stripers That's really important. Everything is too. We hear about background checks all the time. In other words, were there actually violations of the law by any of the FFLs, or were they simply acquiescing to orders? from the federal government to go ahead and sell these guns to people who should not have
1: received them. Sure. I'll peel that onion apart one later at a time. Yeah. I know, a, I know it's a thick one. No, but it's good questions for, for your listeners. Like, first off, we did, while I was out there, have one dealer who was corrupt. The store was Excalibur Arms. He was selling guns knowingly, like he'd fill out the forms for the traffickers. And we referred that case for prosecution, it was declined. We referred it a second time when we had some more information, it was declined. They wouldn't prosecute him. He was, his post-Miranda statement was, yeah, I know about a thousand of my guns made it to Mexico. Who cares? It's Mexico. So here's a guy who was complicit in trafficking firearms. He was a licensed dealer. He's the only one that I had seen in my roughly 20 years with ATF where you had a dirty dealer. Mm-hmm. Now, the straw purchasers, for the most part, they can pass a background check. Mm-hmm. So what the cartels would do is they'd have handlers in the US and they would go look for people who were down on their luck, people who, who just wanted to make a quick buck. But these people, had they have no criminal history. So what happens is they can go into a store. The dealer will run their background. They'll pass that NICS check and they get the gun. They go in with the intent on giving the gun to someone who's going to be that handler, who's going to take it and pass it on to a trafficker or they themselves would bring it to Mexico. And it wasn't like tractor trailers full of guns going to Mexico. It's like a couple here, a couple there. And the funny thing is, aduana, which is Mexican customs, they don't really screen the cars very well going into Mexico. They certainly don't screen the cars that the Plaza boss tells them they're not going to screen. So, mm-hmm. so you have that. So, But what would happen is the dealers, when they would see something that looks suspicious, because look, straw purchase is an act of deception. Mm-hmm. I'm going and saying I'm buying the gun for me. And if I don't do anything suspicious, there's no way a dealer is going to know that the gun is for somebody else. Then there's other times where people will do suspicious stuff, like while they're buying the gun, they'll be texting somebody or taking pictures of different guns and sending them. So it's like, Hey, are you picking out the gun or is the person on the other end of that phone picking out the gun? So, but so in the instances where the dealers couldn't determine that it was a straw purchase, they're going to make the sale. That's not their fault. And that's why Mm -hmm. you get upset when people try to blame the dealers, because how are you supposed to know if, unless there's some sort of indicia that says that they're straw purchasing, are they going to say I'm not selling the gun to you because you look Mexican or because you're right. black or because you're you look like an Italian mobster? They're selling a legitimate commodity, but so but I never had an instance where I saw a dealer send sell a gun to someone suspicious and not call us. I had not heard of that. I had not seen it. The dealers that we dealt with were incredibly cooperative. So but the back to background checks. The the times where we would see folks not go through the background check were the times where we would see folks at the gun shows way we'd watch these guys, like I mentioned, the guys with the Sinaloa plates, or sometimes you'd see guys with the SS bolts, like the white Aryan brotherhood guys. You knew they just got out of prison. They're trying to... and they would look at the gun shows for people who would flash signs saying off paper sales. Right. But the interesting thing is the licensed dealers that were at the gun show would call us and say, hey man, right. there's a guy. So, and that's why I get so upset when people try to demonize licensed gun dealers. Look, if there's a mm-hmm. dirty licensed gun dealer, lock them up. We tried, right. that didn't work. But instead, people like to point fingers at the industry saying, well, that this guy's a gun dealer, so he'll probably sell you one gun over the table and then two under the table. They just don't do that. This is really important. This is really important because I think, I think
2: Bill and I have talked about this on this show, maybe on my show, but this gun show loophole myth. In other words, there is no gun. There's background checks just as much at a gun show as there are at a brick and mortar, but there can be sometimes people are actually violating the law that she just actually identified really well. That's where whatever loopholes exist It's behavior, not actually any loophole in the law.
1: Yeah. Well, what you'd have is you'd have some, and it's, again, these aren't, deal, these aren't licensed dealers. You'd have some people who would buy guns with mm-hmm. the intent on selling them for profit, right? So they are technically unlicensed dealers. Like, they, and, and look, some of them used to claim, well, it's my personal collection. But you'd look, and they, we just bought like these three guns last week. So mm-hmm. if you were collecting them, why are you selling them so quickly? Right. But right. again, it was the-, the It's a short-term term like, collector. Exactly. But the interesting thing was the dealers, they know who each other were, the gun dealers, the licensed gun dealers. So when they saw somebody behaving that way, they were good citizens. They would call us and we would take action and we would seize the guns and invariably more often than not, nobody went to jail, which to me was the most mind blowing thing is that we would refer cases. In fact, there were a few cases, tell you two things very quickly. There were a few Mm -hmm. cases that when I got there, we had 448 open cases when I got there, partially because they sat on them at the US Attorney's Office. And they wouldn't make a decision there were roughly six of them that the statute of limitations had expired yep right so you can't decide in five years Mm -hmm. yep then there was one that was somewhat pretty important case to us and i got upset at one of my agents because look as a federal agent it's different than as a cop where a cop you bring a guy to booking and the da is going to do what they have to do federally like like bill was saying is you got to sell the case to the prosecutor Mm -hmm. and sometimes my agents didn't do enough selling so I'm not going to entirely always blame the prosecutor. So we had this one case and I had the agent, good guy, Mario. I said, Mario, go and sit down with the prosecutor and they'll explain that we have a vested interest in this case and we want to see it pursued. So he went to the sit down with the uh, chief of the gun unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And our cases are, they were called blue jackets. Basically, it's a bunch of reports with attachments. And the cover was like a blue cardboard, like l- darker than like a light blue shirt, a medium blue. So Mario comes back and throws the blue jacket on my desk saying they declined it. And I look at the blue jacket and it was literally on this prosecutor's windowsill for so long that the blue cover was bleached perfectly white. It looked like a, it looked like a sheet of typing paper. If it wasn't mm-hmm. thicker, then it, didn't, it was clearly the blue jacket turned it upside down and it was still blue underneath. But that's how slow they were to make decisions, yep. which was incredibly frustrating.
0: Yeah, I think that especially with all the talk recently about new gun laws, the need for new gun laws, and that I I always find that incredibly frustrating, Pete, because I know what you know, which is that we don't enforce the gun laws that we have, we don't charge people with gun crimes that are committed every single day in this country. And I experienced in LA, with DEA, the same things that you're talking about with prosecutors, where uh, we would have to keep a spreadsheet. And as cases came up on the statute of limitations, say, hey, this case is going to time out in eight months. You've got to charge this case. We had fentanyl cases. We had cases with drugs. And gu- I remember one case, over a dozen guns taken in the case. And a year goes by, and two years goes by, and three years goes by, and it's not charged. And I don't think the public realizes that part of the puzzle, like, like that part of the issue that's contributing to, to gun violence in this country. is just we don't, char- we don't charge a lot of the crimes that we, the other that thing we collect though- evidence on.
1: Yeah. But the other thing is, look, th- there's a huge disparity in how U.S. attorneys operate. Mm-hmm. Like in Arizona, right. it blew my mind to see how, how, look, how lazy they were, how disengaged mm-hmm. they were. They would, any reason to pass on a case, and sometimes even if they make up reasons. Yep. When I was in New York, I didn't see that. When I was nope. a special agent in charge of ATF's Miami office, the Miami office was not as aggressive as New York, but they were far more aggressive than Phoenix. And then I've been to other parts of the country where the U.S. attorney's offices are great. And then somewhere they suck. But that lack of consistency really equals unequal justice when you think about it. If, if Pete Fraselli commits a crime in the Bronx, he's going to go to federal prison for four years. If that same person commits that same crime on the streets of Phoenix, well, he's going to get a pass. So when you think about it, it, it amounts to unequal justice. And the other thing is like going back to what I was saying earlier, in those parts of the country, it's really discouraging when you think that the federal agents that work there are never going to really learn their abilities. They're never going to learn the job. And then the other thing in Phoenix that used to break my heart was, because look, I had friends in that US attorney's office. I would see people come over from Maricopa County attorney's office and they would get jobs as federal prosecutors because the feds paid a lot more, right? So they would come in like, wow, yeah, I've made the big time thinking they were going to make all of these cases. And then the office policies would grind them down where six months later, they were miserable in their jobs. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily even the, the people sometimes as it was their management. And the office policies, which handcuffed them and really prevented us from being able to keep the street safe and certainly didn't stop the carnage in Mexico or Brian Terry's death. Yeah. So Pete, talk, talk about the, just so people
0: are clear, the actual investigative technique that was used in this. Like you, you spoke about walking guns. What exactly was the strategy, not the strategy, but what exactly? what were they doing? What were the agents in the office doing?
1: It's not as much what they were doing as what they weren't doing, to be honest with you. And it's like mm-hmm. I was saying before, like we would get those phone calls from the dealers and we would conduct car stops and we would separate the people in the car. We would ask questions. Sometimes we would, if, sometimes they had stories. So we had to disprove those stories. I make a lot of money and you'd call, uh, run their hit job through the, I forgot who we used to call over there. And they would say, yeah, the person made like $16,000 last year in total income. And mm-hmm. here they just bought like $20,000 worth of guns. So you knew they were full of crap. So you'd use all these things to build up probable cause. What they weren't doing in the other group when Fast and Furious started was that. They weren't using the basic techniques. They weren't going after the low hanging fruit and trying to prosecute them and then working their way up the chain. Instead, they, they were just listening on a wiretap, which is appalling in itself, that they knew what these folks were going to the gun stores to do. And then they weren't stopping the cars and asking the questions and finding out who else was in the car. So, they would just let the document the license plate, let's follow them to a house. All right, we got this, we got the address, let's go home. Where in the past, we never let that gun leave our site because we didn't mm-hmm. want it to be used against some cop or somebody. So, that was, they abandoned those basic principles of law enforcement. But it got crazy. There was one case, well, Fast and Furious, by the way, was one case. Mm-hmm. And we talked about straw buyers. There was one straw buyer in that case that purchased over 600 guns before the U.S. Attorney's Office thought he was worth indicting. And this is after guns that, that they had purchased were showing up already at crime scenes in Mexico. But when I spoke to the case agent, I went through the academy with her. I wasn't involved in that case at all, but I would hear things occasionally. And this was after Brian Terry's death. I'm like, oh, what the fuck were you thinking? And she's like, Pete, you don't understand. There were times where we asked Emory, who was the prosecutor, can we lock this guy up or can we seize these guns? And he would say no. So she'd be like, no. He's like, well, how do we prove that this particular purchase wasn't for himself? So wait a minute, this guy's bought dozens of guns. They're showing up next to bodies in, in Mexico. And you're worried that at, at trial, he's going to say that this particular purchase was for himself? This It was fucking crazy. And it really thumbed its nose at public safety, which was why I was so pointed in my opening statement, which you read at the beginning of the episode in front of Congress, was this went against everything I believed in and mm-hmm. truthfully built everything that every agent that I had worked with all over the country believed in. And it, the weird thing is when John Dodson who was the first agent from that group called Senator Grassley's office. First off, people thought John was full of shit. People are like, we don't do that. This, John's lying. There's no way this can happen. But I was at another meeting with, with our SAC, Bill Newell, and he was voicing, hey, the U.S. Attorney's Office is really pissed that John blew the whistle. And uh, don't be surprised. I'd steer clear of John. Don't be surprised if he finds himself indicted. And I'm thinking to myself that day, I'm like, wait a minute. For years, we were asking them to indict Firearms traffickers who were supplying or trying to supply Mexican drug cartels who were Mm -hmm. committing heinous acts, terroristic acts in Mexico. And now they're thinking of indicting John Dodson. No fucking way. And that is actually that night I went home, had a conversation with my wife because we again, we didn't know that the the guns were being allowed to ride off into the the sunset at that time. We didn't know what they were doing. Certainly didn't think that was the, the solution. And I said, look, tomorrow morning, I'm calling Grassley's office. And that's what I did. I called him and said, hey, listen, I I know you're being told by people in DOJ and people at ATF that John Dodson's liar. He ain't lying. So let's have a conversation. Give me a subpoena. I'll tell you everything you want to know. And I did. Yeah. Let me jump in there because
2: you made a point about this goes against everything that, you know, those of us law enforcement, especially you with ATF, we're fighting against. In other words, it's public safety. Mm -hmm. It is interdicting this type of firearms trafficking. This is what you exist for. But it's not, only, it's not only ATF and people like you, but supposedly this is in contradiction to the people that we've elected. Supposed, again, supposedly they're all about gun safety. They're all about the heavy regulation of these dangerous assault weapons and things like this. This is where it's so mind-boggling that this, this actually occurred Because this type of ignorance towards this behavior has to come from the highest level. And that's not something we've actually touched on yet. We can get to it whenever you guys are ready. But in other words, what was the motivation behind this type of, this so-called strategy? How did we get here? What's actually behind it is the big question.
1: I think it's a combination of two things. And again, I wasn't in that group. I wasn't sitting in main justice with Holder and those guys or, or in headquarters. with. I think that for one of the parts of the equation that agents, because there were agents in that group that worked in Phoenix for years, they saw that when they did things the right way, it never worked. They would be told no. So The weird thing is you had the same AUSA who was telling us no for years is now the quarterback of Fast and Furious, because they had a say in how this thing was operating. And when the dealers, like I said before, when the dealers called and said, hey, we don't want to sell anymore. We don't feel, this is something. There's something really fishy going on here. That AUSA, the chief of the gun unit, went and met with the dealers and said, keep selling. So but for years, the agents, when they tried to do things the right way, didn't work. So maybe they said, let's try it his way now. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, when you go into a gun store, if you buy a gun today and a gun a week from now, right? there's no multiple sale form filled out. But if you go in and buy two guns, two handguns, this is pre Fast and Furious. There's a, a document called the multiple sale form that's filled out and sent to ATF. Now, it doesn't mean ATF's tracking you. It doesn't mean ATF's going to knock on your door, but it's people look at it, right? So I remember we had one case where a guy bought 19 Glock model 19s, which is collectors usually don't buy 19 of the same gun. So I was like, all right, this is a little bit suspicious. So we contacted the guy and he's like, hey, man, just started a security guard company. Here's my document. My plan is that I'll arm the guys who work for me. I'll vet them. Okay, good. Hey, man, have a nice day. Good luck with your company. It wasn't anything nefarious, but it was Mm -hmm. something that warranted a conversation. So, but if you went into a gun store back then and you bought two Derringers, right? Two, mm-hmm. two shot Derringers. That form got filled out. If you went into the gun store and bought the 13 AK variant rifles, there was no requirement. It was only for pistols. So when Fast and Furious was happening, they got a little giddy that, hey, this would be a great, uh, a, a great cause to, to, to say why we would have to implement, they called it demand letter three, a, a multiple sale requirement for rifles. And they got it passed, which is it's only in effect on the border states. But prior to Fast and Furious, if you went in and said, I want all your rifles, and you had the money to buy them, and the guy didn't call us and you bought them, there was no form filled out. Now there's a form. So if Brian Terry died because they wanted to implement the form, I can't think of anything that's more disgusting than that. But yeah, so that's the only thing that I saw from my perspective as a first-line supervisor that was different that came out of Fast and Furious was the implementation of Demand Letter 3.
2: And for people who don't know, Brian Terry, he died- He died at the hands of a cartel member who was using one of these weapons that was purchased through a straw purchase in, I believe, Arizona. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely correct.
1: And the dealer who sold the gun was one of the dealers who said, hey, I don't want to sell guns anymore for these guys. I don't feel... Again, they were good citizens. They called us. We interdicted those guns. So this poor guy is told to continue to sell guns after he's aware that a gun was turned up at the scene of the murder of a Border Patrol agent. The only hero in Fast and Furious was Brian Terry. Mm -hmm. Just some numbers. I think the case
0: was opened, Pete, and correct me if I'm wrong, sometime in October 2009, the actual Fast and Furious investigation.
1: Which, by the way, the name of the case was actually uh, Jacob Chambers et al. and others. Mm -hmm. Um, Fast and Furious was a nickname that was given to the case by the people who were working it because those guys drove around and those real... Kind of souped up little Japanese sports cars. But the actual case name was Jacob Chambers et al. Got it.
0: So by January 8th, 2010, so that's, I don't know, what, a month and a half, two months, something like that. According to the OIG report, over 500 firearms were purchased for a quarter million dollars. That's between November 1st and January 8th. And then in the month prior to opening that case, they traced another 150 firearms for $80,000. So that's just the volume of uh, guns that were being purchased. Now, one of the things I noticed that the mantra of Phoenix leadership in defending this case was we're slowing down something to that effect. Pete. They, they said they were slowing down the straw purchases. I saw no evidence of that. They weren't, right?
1: No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And like I said, they were allowing these straw purchases to happen, allowing the guns to ride off into the sunset, not knowing who those guns would be pointed at at some point. And like, Look, I find it appalling if anybody would think, well, who cares? They're Mexicans. It's Mexico because they're human beings down there. But mm-hmm. nothing said when you're not stopping at, because they weren't following these guns to the border. Right. Nothing said that somebody's of these guns weren't going to be pointed at some cop in New York City or Los Angeles or somewhere else. That's appalling. And I'll tell you, I. Like I said, there was, the dealers were cooperative. There was one instance where they were out conducting surveillance and the, the straw buyers saw the surveillance team and they called the police because they thought the surveillance team were robbers who were going to rob them of the guns. So the Scottsdale police completely, I'm not besmirching them, they were completely unaware of this ATF case. Scottsdale police show up at the Scottsdale Gun Club, which was a cooperative dealer, by the way, and follow the buyers to, for their safety off-site so that they wouldn't get robbed. So you basically in this particular instance, you had straw purchasers getting a police escort from the scene of the purchase until they got to a place where they felt safe because the ATF wasn't communicating with the Scottsdale Police Department. They were even there surveilling a straw purchase at a once and continually cooperative dealer. The whole case was a mess. And then look, there was another case that I, I reference in the book It was handled by the same prosecutor, where we had a guy who was making grenades for the Sinaloa cartel. He got caught red-handed crossing the border with disassembled grenades in his tire, and the prosecutor ordered us to let him go. 114 disassembled grenades in his tire. Confessed that he had made hundreds and hundreds of grenades for the Sinaloa cartel. Confessed that he was taking the AR-15s that were smuggled down and the AK variants smuggled and turning them into fully automatic weapons, and they ordered us to cut him loose. That's the stuff that was going on down there. Which is why i felt so compelled to write the book because what happened was when you talked about fast and furious inside of atf it was like fight club like so agents in other parts of the country don't even to this day know the real story about what happened there because you weren't allowed to talk about it
2: right i've read in in some of the articles pete I've, I've read about some of those communications obviously heavily redacted a lot of them with the name of names of government officials things like this but the sentiment in some of these email exchanges and, but I think it's important. I think it's really important because when I was watching this, what, 14 years ago unfold, 13, 14 years ago in the public arena, it, it, it was apparent to me that there was a political motivation. In other words, why would you let someone go who you've just contacted to an enforcement stop and they are carrying whatever, 13 weapons, in other words who was behind saying we're not going to prosecute that crime and what is the motivation for not prosecuting it? And did you actually discuss that in your hearings in Congress about what the motivations were, or were you just concerned more about what the the actual effects
1: of this was? Well, before I testified at that hearing on June 15th, there was a deposition, because first they depose you. And it's it, look, the deposition is a lot more fact-finding than the hearing itself, because the hearing, they all get their five-minute grandstanding. Mm-hmm, yes. And they throw out their political points, regardless of which side. And look, public safety should be completely separate from politics. They should never be intertwined. So, but I put everything on the table. The techniques that we used, how they would repeatedly end in frustration when we would be told no. The stuff that I had heard was going on in the Fast and Furious case. I wasn't involved in that case. I didn't physically see it. The decisions that were made at the top. But look, for those years, for those three years, very few of the people that we wanted prosecuted were prosecuted. And I honestly think it was because the U.S. attorney's office there was, look, I'll just say it plainly, yep. lazy. They didn't care. Like when I worked in New York, you'd see prosecutors sitting there typing away on you know, documents at 30, 8 o'clock at night. If you tried to call a Phoenix AUSA back in those days after 4.30, good luck. Yep. So look, the, if they said no to the case, that was less workload for them. So and look, some of the cases were, look, I'll give you another example. There was one case where when the gun is traced, right, if the gun was bought less than two years right they call it time to crime, that's considered like an indicator for a t f that it probably was trafficked doesn't always mean it could have been stolen out of a car, person could have shot it for a year and decided, you know what i this gun's a piece of shit, I want to sell it, but more often than not it's going to warrant like somebody's going to look at it. We had one case where uh, a gun was purchased and 48 hours later was found at a crime scene in a town in Mexico called Cananea, which is like 40 miles south of the border. The crime scene was 21 people dead, four of them cops. Four other cops were picked up by the cartels that killed those people and brought into the desert and beaten and left for dead. So here we have a gun that's, that's bought and like 48 hours later used it in a massacre, right? So we find a straw purchaser. He confesses, yeah, I bought it, gave it to so-and-so. We find the trafficker. He confesses, yep, I got it from Southside Borough across the border. We referred that case for prosecution, declined. Because the gun is in Mexico, though, therefore the body of the crime is in Mexico. Well, again, like I was saying before, in Fast and Furious, now all of a sudden the plan is to let the guns go to Mexico. Like, how does the math doesn't add up here. Right. Well, well up.
2: plus there's still the underlying case in right. the United States. Correct. Now, I get you. you're not going to prosecute maybe a murder in Mexico. Understood. You still can, yeah, you still can prosecute the
1: underlying transaction that occurred here. Correct. And look, what you're charging them with is lying on the form Correct. 4473. Right. We had the form in hand. Yes, right. the gun right. is in Mexico, but the form is right here. And we would be told, no, guns in Mexico. And this went on again and again. And the body count in Mexico was growing. And look, let's be honest. Guns aren't loaves of bread. They're not apples. They're not going to rot. Those guns are still turning up at crime scenes, and look, if I die an old man in my 90s, there'd probably still be guns turning up at crime scenes in Mexico that were trafficked as part of this case, because mm-hmm. right. as long as the people are using them, they're not recovered, they're out there. They don't biodegrade. They're, they're there right. till they're found.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought one of the... Uh, listen, I well, like I said, I read the OIG report, and I arrived at that same conclusion that you did about, the, the unfortunately, just say it, the laziness of the U.S. Attorney's Office there. <laughs> and one of the things that I think was... I don't know. I want to say that one of the most egregious things is when lawyers from the Department Criminal Division, the Department of Justice Criminal Division actually, let's say, volunteer or they offered their assistance to Phoenix to come prosecute the case in Phoenix. And they were told, no, no, we don't need your help. Yes. That to me. And listen, I see that in the drug side. I see I saw that same type of thing on the drug side where a local prosecutor's office does not want to bring in prosecutors from somewhere else because it creates the appearance that they're not doing their job or they don't know what they're doing. So instead, they arrogantly say, no, we got this handled and look what resulted from that. And it was so painful to read that when there was a qualified prosecutor who had done, basically, I would say an expert, I forget her name, a female, was an expert on, on doing gun trafficking cases from the criminal division, makes an offer of assistance to Hurley He turns her down. She tells her supervisor, no, they they turned down our offer. And then in the OIG interview, he says, I don't remember them ever making an offer of assistance to me.
1: Oh, let me tell you, they lied their asses off, not just in that OIG report. There was a separate OIG report on the Kingery case, which was the grenade guy. They lied about that as well. In fact, they tried to turn the Kingery case into a, hey, ATF never wanted to arrest that guy. And thank God, because basically they were trying to pin it on me. Because I had blown the whistle on him. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's mm-hmm. funny, I mentioned a deposition earlier. I, when I was deposed by staffers from Senator Grassley's staff, Senator Leahy's staff, the chairman was Daryl Issa, was chairman mm-hmm. of Oversight, mm-hmm. and Elijah Cummings was the ranking member. So I was interviewed by all four of their staffs. The interview happened in a room that they had put aside, like a conference room at a hotel, six blocks from the Phoenix Field Division. So I tell them everything, like a six, I think it was a like six or seven hour deposition. Tell them everything on the table, about everything that I saw, like, look, like, you can't fix something you're not going to talk about, right? So by the time I walk the six blocks to my office, I get a phone call from an AUSA saying, hey, Pete, just want to give you a heads up, buddy. Everything you said in that room was relayed to the United States attorney, right? So here it's supposed to be a separate investigation. So the, now Dennis Burke, the U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona, gets a phone call. I believe it was from Senator Leahy's staff because he was the chairman of the judiciary at the time. Mm -hmm. And so then the following, I think it was like the next day or a couple of days later, I get another call from another AUSA saying, hey, man, we need to meet for coffee. And he shows me an email that Dennis Burke sent out. Again, the United States attorney, the chief federal law enforcement officer for the state of Arizona. It said, anyone having contact with Pete Versulli, even if you see him having coffee with his family on the weekend, is to be reported to me through your chain of command immediately. And that's when I realized, holy shit, I'm a marked man here in Phoenix. But so they lied about stuff in the Kingery case saying that we didn't want to arrest Jean-Baptiste Kingery when he got caught with those grenades in his tire. Thank God we had reached out to the Southern District of New York because they were doing a case on the Sinaloa to see, hey, is there any way that you can adopt this into your 846 conspiracy? And they couldn't. And then we were also communicating with Mexico saying, hey, if you guys grab him. So if we wanted to keep him out and use him as an informant, why would we do that and have him sent to a district 2000 miles away? or let the Mexicans get hands on him because you know they would never let us talk to him if, he, if they grabbed them. So even the, the lies that they said in the OIG case into Jean-Baptiste Kingery were like so over the top and, and demonstrably false that it's like, how do they get away with saying these things and not being held accountable? But look, the reality is, is the architects for Fast and Furious are still employed at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona. They're still there.
0: Pete, and I don't want to get off track, which this is a whole other show, but Operation Wide Receiver, the predecessor to Fast and Furious, was that the same U.S. attorney's office or was that, is there a different U.S.
1: attorney's office in Tucson? Well, there is, but they they answered to the same U.S. attorney. And it's weird, like, and that's the thing that really, one of the things that actually led to me deciding why I wanted to write about Fast and Furious. When Fast and Furious happened, the, obviously the people on the right were like, Obama created, this is Obama, this is coming from the White House. And then the Democrat side would be like, no, no, this actually started under George Bush. This is wide receiver. It's a continuation. They were two completely different cases. Right. Mm-hmm. Both were shit shows. Wide receiver was far less guns. I think it was like 200 guns. But that had ended before the Fast and Furious group was even stood up. And candidly, the Tucson U.S. Attorney's Office was a lot more aggressive than the Phoenix U.S. Attorney's Office, which was odd because they answered to the same U.S. Attorney and the U.S. Attorney himself sat in Phoenix. But when you talk to the agents that worked at Tucson, they had a lot better luck getting cases presented than we did.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Pete, to talk about the leadership failures in this, I think, well, let me hear your thoughts on it. The leadership failures, what was probably missing from leadership in the Phoenix office? um, What
1: lessons should have been learned? Bill, I'm glad you're asking that question because another thing that I thought Fast and Furious would be a cautionary tale, frankly, Mm -hmm. and that- cautionary tale, aside from don't abandon the basic principles of policing, is learn your job before you try to promote to the next job. Mm-hmm. Bill Newell was the special agent in charge of the Phoenix Field Division. He's actually one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. He's not an evil. And I, and I know Brian Terry's family will probably flip out if they hear this, because look, he's, he's responsible for the death of Brian through his inaction and in leadership. So is the U.S. Attorney's Office for their just egregious disregard for the basic principles of policing and prosecution. But Bill was one of those guys, Like, if you went up to Bill and said, hey, Bill, my my mom's back in New York. She's sick. Hey, you know what? I'll temporarily assign you to New York. You'll go there for a couple months. Take care of your mom. You come back when you're done. He was just a kind man, but he had like virtually no street experience. So what happened was you had an ASAC that had come in because there were two ASACs. You know how structure works, but for your Mm -hmm. listeners, there's a special agent in charge is like the, the commander of that district or division. And then he has two assistant special agent in charge. And then each of them have like group supervisors. So you're basically splitting that responsibility. Jim Needles was the first assistant special agent in charge that came out to Phoenix after I was there. Bill Noel had gotten there shortly before me. Again, like I said, no street experience whatsoever, but a very nice guy. Jim Needles was a very experienced ASAC. But then Jim would not have allowed this case to go the way it went. And then another ASAC came in shortly after it was a guy named George Gillette who was a sinister guy. In fact, George had purchased a gun personally that showed up at the murder of a Mexican beauty queen that the address on the gun, OIG investigated this as well, came back to a strip mall. George put the like one of those post office stores as his address, which is a crime. So basically, in essence, George lied on a 4473 and the gun he bought, which was an FN 5.7 pistol, turned up at the murder of a Mexican beauty queen in Mexico, go figure But what happened was George was roommates with the former ATF deputy director back in the day, who was a respected guy, nice guy, Billy Hoover. But because Bill was so focused on moving up in the ranks and George had that connection to Billy Hoover, Jimmy Needles, who was experienced ASAC, was disregarded and became like second class citizen there as Mm -hmm. George and Bill had this kind of relationship. And George was in some ways the driver of Fast and Furious because- he controlled what was allowed to happen in that case and some of the communications with headquarters. But, but again, not giving Bill a pass because had Bill said no or had someone in that chain of command said no, or even decided, you know what, we're not doing this. We're going to take the case to the county like the other groups did, then the guns would have never made it onto the street. So it's not to defend ATF in any way. And then at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Emery Hurleaf, who for years wasn't prosecuting cases for any reason he can come up with under the sun, all of a sudden is going to. Be the, the leader of this Fast and Furious prosecution. That's like a kid that watches football but never really played, watches on TV, deciding, hey, Super Bowl's coming. Let me put on my fucking shoulder pads and go out there and quarterback this game. So there were a lot of failures at so many different levels that it's hard to sit here and describe them in with probably going to be a two-hour podcast and certainly hard to describe them over a few hours drinking beers. Yeah. but well, The
0: things that I saw were just a, a lack of engagement and Mark, you and I talked about this before, and I don't know whether it was you speaking about one of the supervisors you had over the years, but just not asking questions. I even see that on the private side now. When businesses when businesses incur some kind of financial loss or something and they reach out to me and we look at what happened, it's almost always just someone who didn't ask questions and just rubber-stamped stuff. And when I looked at this, I said, man, if someone had just taking the time to, to ask some questions about this and find out what exactly was going on, I think a lot of people
1: would have said, no, we can't do this. Hold on. Take a step back from this. Absolutely. In fact, one of the, one of the managers and headquarters that was fired was a guy named Bill McMahon. Bill trusted his boots on the ground sack, who had no yeah. experience to make the yeah. right decisions. But he wasn't asking those questions because he, like, he trusted his guy. Should have asked those questions. I was with Bill when the North Tower fell on 9-11. Bill was a hero. Bill was a great agent but he wasn't paying attention. Same Mm -hmm. thing with his boss. like They just trusted their guy. They didn't ask those questions when they should have, and their careers ended. But the the crazy thing is, look, a lot of agents, look, some agents who should have lost their jobs didn't. I talk about that in the book. And then there were some people who, again, they weren't paying attention, but hey, when you're the captain of the ship, you got to own it. So they lost their jobs. And I think in hindsight, they'll even say, yeah, I should have been paying attention and I deserved it. But the lawyers went completely unscathed. Dennis Burke had to resign because- of a number of things, to include the Kingery case. But other than that, the people in the U.S. Attorney's Office stuck around. And look, I was going through retaliation. When I was testifying in front of Congress on June 15th, the chief of the criminal division was in ATF headquarters that day, saying I was committing perjury by saying that they declined these cases, some of which were declined in writing, all of which were declined with witnesses. So when they subpoenaed him, say, hey, you're going to come in and tell your story, he pled the fifth and resigned. Wow. Yeah. It's It's interesting.
2: I mean, we're talking about leadership and um, people being lazy, people just not doing the right thing, and all of that happened. But I have to say, reading this just recently, getting up to speed for today's show, but also relying on my recollection from when this was happening, it just seems to me there's something more nefarious, there's something more cultural, and there's something more intentional in this than just lack of oversight, just lack of leadership. And just one from the articles from 2011 in a, a publication called Capital Flows, but I'm quoting this. As it turns out, ATF leadership was actually able to follow some of these illegal purchases live on closed-circuit television. In a news release in J- June 2011, a representative of ISIS said as much, quote, acting director Melson was able to sit at his desk in Washington and, sell- and himself watch a live feed of straw buyers entering the gun store and purchasing dozens of AK-47s. Yeah. Now, this is the acting leader. You talked about Nelson a little bit earlier, Pete. In other words, if you see an individual engaging in behavior that, again, an agency, an organization, a leader of organization is put on earth to actually prevent and you actually allow it to happen, just my common sense says there's something behind your reasoning for not pursuing, preventing, following up on, on this particular behavior. Now we can speculate. I can give you my opinions to why, but to me it just seems like there has to be something at a much larger, a much higher level, 30,000 foot view from management quotas, so to speak that's behind this unwillingness to take the appropriate action.
1: Yeah. Again, I think part of it was that they wanted that demand letter to three to become a reality. And that's because mm-hmm. it was discussed. And whether that was the driving factor behind it, that I can't say because I wasn't in DC. Look, Ken Melson had come out to Phoenix in late 2009, maybe August of 2009, because we had done some home invasion roundups. And I had a conversation with him and I told him, because he was asking me, how do you like the job? Like what? And I told him, look, this job, I love the job. I love my people, but the US Attorney's Office here sucks. And I gave him many of the details about what they were doing. And he, he, I believe he was at the executive office of US attorneys before that. And he seemed to listen. So, why he would trust the Phoenix US attorney's office to all of a sudden pivot and run this case, who knows? I will say this when Ken Melson was approached to testify, DOJ told him, You're not to, you're not to speak to Congress. Ken Melson actually went in on July 4th of 2011 because it was the holiday. His detail wasn't around. And he actually mm-hmm. laid everything on the table and was honest. So, in fact, he, I found out from the staffers, from Senator Grassley's office, said, hey, everything Pete Verselli said was exactly true. While at the same time, I was being accused of perjury by Dennis Burke and by his staff, the ATF director said Pete was spot on. So, I have to give Melson credit for going Mm -hmm. in against DOJ's advice and giving a full deposition. And my understanding is that, yeah, he admitted that they fucked up, but he also was truthful about what he knew, which is more than some folks did. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know where Melson's at now or what happened. I know he was removed. I know he was replaced by a guy named B. Todd Jones, who was actually appointed by Obama and who was very close friends with Holder. So I figured, oh shit, I'm doomed. (laughs) Because this whole thing did not reflect well on Holder. And here I was the whistleblower who took it out of ATF and made it a a larger DOJ scandal. Mm -hmm. But B. Todd Jones was a Marine Corps colonel. And he came in and not only did he not mess with me, when I was fighting back against the OJ, he he didn't have, well, he had my back in that he never got in the way and never came after me for fighting my battles. Look, I survived because I stuck to the mission. I had some allies. He he became one of them. In the beginning, I don't know if he knew what to make of me, but there was another, his deputy director was a guy named Tom Brandon, who literally gave me a challenge coin when I got subpoenaed and said, Pete, as long as you're telling the truth, I have your back. And he kept to his word. But look, what was going on in Phoenix? People outside of that group didn't know what was happening. Right? Mm-hmm, people right. outside of Phoenix still don't know what was happening down there. Because I remember Carlos Canino, who was one of my best friends. He was the attaché in Mexico at the time. When he came up for the big Fast and Furious takedown, Carlos is like, "Pete, this guy Dodson's full of shit. There's no way that these that ATF. We don't do that. We don't walk guns." So, Carlos is a pretty tough guy. He's a, did a lot of undercover. He, he's a he's he's going to say what's on his mind. I was there when Carlos actually read the operational report and he looked at me and he's a tough dude. He's like, he literally got like light on his feet, like wobbly. He's like, Pete, I think I'm going to fucking throw up. He goes, Mm -hmm. these assholes actually walked guns. So here's the guy in Mexico on the other side, had no idea, right? right? He's on the Mexican side, had no idea that Phoenix was allowing this to happen. He had told the attorney general of Mexico, who he was very good friends with, this is bullshit, ATF doesn't do this. Now he's like, Pete, I got to go back and tell the attorney general of Mexico that I lied to her. Because these assholes weren't telling the truth. Now I got to go and tell her what's really going on in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Carlos, like I said, I, I never saw a guy like Carlos, who's like like said, a football player, a tough guy, get that weak in the knees over reading a document in my life.
2: Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. In other words, if, if he's a stand-up guy, I can see why he got weak in the knees. Yeah, yeah.
0: Pete, talk about the the retaliation, or I don't know how you would term it, but what happened to yourself? In the others, the, in the immediate aftermath of this thing, and then I think years later, as, as the truth actually came out and people saw that you were saying the right thing for the right reasons, how how the attitude hopefully changed.
1: Well, the first thing that happened, obviously, I was accused of perjury. I had the U.S. attorney having his people basically say, hey, if you see this guy, even on the weekend, I'm to be notified. So look, you know how it goes. If a U.S. attorney's office decides they're going to get you, it could be something as simple as you testified that you thought you saw a white car and it was a gray car. Oh, he's lying. So and, and mm-hmm. with the, in the federal system, there's that Giglio thing where if, yeah. if they say that you're being dishonest, you can get stripped of your security clearance and you get, you're done. You're without a career. So initially, I tried to keep running my group. But when I realized that the U.S. attorney's office had it out for me, that was not a safe place to be for my people. So I said, look, I approached the guy who had talked about with the coin, Tom Brandon. I said, Tom. I don't think I could be a good advocate for my group with the U.S. Attorney's Office. So they, they removed me from my office partially with my, because I didn't want to put my people in a bad spot either. Mm-hmm. So, but for a while, they didn't know what to do with me. Like I wanted to transfer and they're like, nope, he's staying there. So I actually, I read the Beltway Sniper After Action Report three times, sat there. People would come to me for advice from other groups because I was the senior supervisor in Phoenix by that time. So I was quietly advising folks on things, but eventually I got surveilled. Right. And then the DAG's office came out and did their own investigation. And it was funny because while I'm getting interviewed by this woman from the deputy attorney general's office who had never prosecuted the case, she was a civil rights lawyer. She Mm -hmm. confides in me that she's very good friends with Emory Hurley's mentor, who was the chief of the gun unit before Emory, whose performance was equally abysmal, although she didn't have a big scandal under her belt. So I was like, oh, this is not good. So, but because they were surveilling me, right now I have to get an attorney I'm not going to get on my computer and email my attorney and I'm not going to get on the phone because I didn't know who was surveilling me. Is it OIG? Is it FBI? At the request of the U.S. attorney's office, not that I had an to grind with them. So I wound up having to travel back and forth to meet with my lawyer. And around that same time, my wife had a knee replacement. So I, I wound up almost bankrupt. We had $26 left to our name. I had a mortgage hmm. payment coming. So I had to pawn all the watches I had owned. I used to be a watch collector. So I pawned the watch to pay a mortgage payment. Pondida. Ran out of watches to the point where I actually had to like hold a yard sale in, in front of my house and sell all my power tools and all my shit, which is incredibly humbling when you're sitting there and you got to pay the mortgage and you have people trying to give you $10 for a drill that you're trying to sell for $25. Yeah. But eventually I got transferred to headquarters for a little while. And then six months later, I was asked if I would go up to Toronto as the attache because I think they wanted to get me out of the area of DC, mm-hmm. also probably out of the reach of media because there was still a lot going on. But while I was in Canada for those two years, I was still under investigation by the OIG and by the DAG's office for that Kingery case. And it's weird because finally, when that Kingery report was going to come out, the, the OIG split the baby because U.S. attorneys was lying to them, demonstrably, yeah. like I said. So yeah. when the report was going to get released, they tell you when it's going to come out. I literally contacted the four corners, they call it. So that was Leahy's staff, Grassley staff, ISA staff, and Cummings' staff. And said, hey, man, when this report comes out, it's going to come out. It came out at noon. It was, I think, in October of 2014. I said, I'll come in. You can ask me any freaking question you want, right? Because what was going on is during the Kingery case, facts would come up and it say, well, Emery Hurley is saying this and you're saying that. And I finally, it was like six different times. I said, look, if you don't believe me, put me on a polygraph. You can ask me any question you want about Fast and Furious, the Kingery case, or any of the other cases I discussed with Congress. I'm not going to let you go fishing about my life, because it's you know, not necessary. Six different times that happened. So finally, when the Kingery Report came out, I literally was sitting on a park bench at the Capitol building. And once the congressional staff had it, they called me, said, we have it. I said, let's sit down. And I went and sat down with staff from Leahy's staff didn't show up. Cummings' staff didn't show up. ISA, Grassley staff did show up and staffer from John McCain, John, yeah, John McCain's office showed up and we went line by line over that report. And look, I made some mistakes, some things I did, like I, a surveillance, I could have handled better. I owned them because I think that's what you're supposed to do as a leader, mm-hmm. but I wasn't mm-hmm. going to let them tarnish my reputation. But yeah, we sat there and went over that report line by line because I went out an attorney, decided I'm going to go there and I'm going to answer this thing up because I want to, I want to protect my reputation. Right. Yeah.
2: It's interesting you said Leahy and Cummings' staff did not show up, but Leahy is the one that went after you with, I think you said the U.S. attorney, that he reported what you said in the deposition. Is that right? That's what I was
1: informed. What is that? What was you, that's statement. what you and, understand. Yeah. And it made sense because Leahy was the chairman of judiciary and a, a U.S. attorney obviously goes through that committee. Mm-hmm. And look, truthfully, I had a conversation with Elijah Cummings, who was the congressman from Baltimore. And Mm -hmm. he actually said that he appreciated my testimony and that he found it to be honest. He was a gentleman. Leahy Mm -hmm. wouldn't answer the phone. Like when I was getting my teeth kicked in by DOJ, I had called the offices a few times and I never, Cummings' office never really got engaged, but at least they had some sympathetic things to say. Leahy's Mm -hmm. office wouldn't even take the calls.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So Pete, going forward, I I think I, I saw one thing on your website that i found interesting it's it's a quote from i think your website now most people think that what happened with operation fast and furious and some of the related cases was something that could never happen again i provide a presentation that describes how it can the key component required for that to happen is a lack of leadership particularly when it comes to making tough decisions so are you involved besides being an author now? Are you doing leadership stuff? Are you taking the lessons that you learned from this and passing that on to, uh, to law enforcement and business?
1: Yes, yes. Because look, uh, Hope McAllister was the case agent Fast and Furious, right? And Emery Hurley was the prosecutor. And they, look, at some point, that first line supervisor could have said, hey, we're not doing this anymore. Right. Right? Or could have went and fought and said, hey, man, we're gonna, we're gonna stop taking these cases to the state because I don't feel safe letting these guns ride off into the sunset. He didn't. Right. The next layer up, like each layer, someone could have said, Hey, stop. And no one did. And like I said, some of it was inexperience. Some of it was people wanting to make other people happy. Some of it was, I think, somewhat strange. Like George Gillette was just, like I said, a kind of a strange guy. It was allegations that he had walked guns on a case years earlier in somewhere, I believe, in w- w- Wisconsin or Minnesota. So I could have stopped it at some point. It's like when you're on the firing range, right? And you see something unsafe. Someone can yell stop and the shooting stops until Mm -hmm. you figure out what's wrong and you fix it. And then the shooting begins again. If agents in that group had spoken up sooner, maybe it could have stopped earlier. John Dotson did blow the whistle. He was the first guy to come forward. And then I told you what happened with that. Once the U.S. Attorney's Office was upset with him when they were rumblings that they may indict him. I was like, I didn't even understand what was going on in the group at the time. But I knew that for years when we were referring cases to them of actual criminals, they weren't prosecuting it. So it was a mess on both sides. On the U.S. Attorney's Office's side, and on ATF side, and look, it went all the way up to, to, I believe the White House, but I could tell you at least to Eric Holder, because mm-hmm. I remember when this was going on everybody's everybody was like, well, we didn't know. We didn't know. Yeah, you did know, because I saw yeah. the briefing papers that went up to headquarters and I know that Holder was being briefed. So you know what? The, the taxpayers deserve, at least if you make a mistake, that you will own the mistake and fix the mistake. And instead, there were years and years of coverups and lies. Yeah.
0: Pete, let me give the name of the book uh, one more time. It's The Deadly Path, How Operation Fast and Furious and Bad Lawyers Arm the Mexican Cartels due out March 5th. Hey, we could talk about it for hours and not do it justice. Everyone's got to get this book. It's a cautionary tale of what happens when, I guess, bad leadership uh, intersects with something dangerous like gun trafficking.
1: hmm
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah, Mark, anything else? No, it's been
2: fascinating. I know you used the term peeling the onion back a while back, Pete, with a question I asked. And this is a gigantic, gargantuan onion. Yeah. And like like Bill said, we could speak for hours and, and not do it justice. So I encourage everybody to get your book, Thanks. Peel That Onion Back. And it's just a pleasure uh, for me to be a part of this conversation today.
0: No honor, Pete, clo- honor to be here. Pete, closing thoughts from you on this thing, like, How it changed your life or or what you hope changes because of you coming. That that was a very brave thing to do. And and that's why I dropped that note at the beginning about about what a hero is. I want to read that again. A hero is true to his or her conscience. In short, heroism means doing the right thing regardless of the consequences. I think you standing up and doing the right thing regardless of the, the consequences, and there were consequences, that was very heroic. What saved you was you had the truth on your side and you had, I guess, your oath on your side. It was for the right reasons you said the right thing.
1: Yeah, it was my duty. And look, the reason I wrote the book, truthfully, is agents in other parts of the country didn't know what happened. And they would occasionally ask. And I, I, we suggested putting together a training like they would do in the military or other organizations so that it never happens again. And we were told, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. So right. it, it's not just for the public to learn what happened. It's for some of my former colleagues who I didn't have a beer with and talk about it over at a bar to read about it. And like I said, hopefully it never happens again because Brian Terry, like I said, what happened to Brian shouldn't happen. And that's that's the real tragedy here. That and all the countless deaths in Mexico. Yeah. And yeah, that's a good point, Pete.
0: Pete, thanks for your time today. Thanks for doing what you're doing. And thanks for thank you for your service.
1: Honored to be here. Thank you. Ditto, Pete. Take care.